Well, church, if you would turn in your Bibles uh, today to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We've had a wonderful, wonderful time in the Psalms. I almost hate to, uh, to be leaving it. It has been such a joy uh, to not only be part of that, but to sit under all the wonderful teaching we've enjoyed this summer. I, I am blessed, so blessed, to know that there are so many men in the church here who uh, can rightly divide the word of truth. Um, you know, we were at the Truth for Youth conference this week, this past week, which is, which is why I missed um, uh, Sunday. And that is not the norm, I will tell you. There are a lot of churches who would kill <laughs> to have many men in the church able to teach the word. That's not to, that is not to, to brag that all. What I'm saying is, I think it's a testimony to what the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of his people here. And I'm cer- certainly grateful. And particularly for the men, you know, me personally, I have a a passion for family ministry and, and, and particularly for uh, to men to be leaders in their homes. And so it's just um, it's a special joy uh, to me. Um, and originally I was going to kick off back in Hebrews, go back into Hebrews because we've been out of it for eight weeks. Um, and then when I heard that Mike was going to come and he was going to preach next week, I just didn't see much, much good in recapping, do a big long of re- a recap of Hebrews only to take another break. Um, and so we're going to talk about something else. And this is something that has also been on my heart because I've had several conversations as of late with different individuals uh, that directly uh, relate to this topic. Um, the sermon's de- titled Departing from the Faith. Um, and really the word for that is apostasy. And we're going to talk about what that is today and we'll read 1 Timothy 4 in a, in a, in a moment. Um, Maybe you have met people, maybe you know people, maybe you even read about people who were well-known, and I'll do it this way, Christians, um, who walked away from the faith. And it's shocking, and it sends uh, shockwaves through the Christian community, and people are always wondering how something like that can happen. And um, I remember in 2007, I had just began in ministry in 2003, but there was a man named Francis Beckwith, who was then the president of the uh, Evangelical Theological Society, who announced that he was resigning from his position because he wanted to, 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 to leave Protestantism to join the Roman Catholic Church. And when we talk about evangelical Protestants, I want to make sure we understand what we're talking about. We would consider ourselves to be evangelicals. It comes from the word euagelion, and, and it means of or according to the gospel. We just want to be a gospel-centered uh, church. But Protestants are called Protestants, really after the declaration of Martin Luther and and his supporters, dissenting from the decision of the the Diet of Spires in 1529, goes way, way uh, back. Um, And basically, Protestants rejected the authority of the papacy and uh, the religious and political authority, because it was both, wasn't it? And they found uh, instead authority in the Bible alone. Um, so we would say that we are evangelical Protestants. And Francis Beckwith gave an answer to the question, well, why would you leave Protestantism for the Roman Catholic Church? And this was his answer. He said, the early church, okay, the early church is more Catholic than Protestant. Now, I would agree with him because Catholic just means universal, and it certainly was the universal church. But he meant more. He says, they have more explanatory power to account for both all the biblical texts on justification as well as the church's historical understanding of salvation 
prior to the Reformation all the way back to the ancient church of the first few centuries. So he's speaking about the early church fathers, and I will say church tradition, their understanding that was passed down, the writings of the early church father, but not, and let me just say it, not scripture. And this is why the great Protestant Reformation took place on October 31st of this year. It'll be the 505th anniversary of that day when Martin Luther tacked his 95 thesis on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, okay? It's a big, uh, a big event that took place. And it took place because the reformers, Martin Luther wasn't the only one, believed that the church at the time, which was the Roman Catholic Church, had departed from the faith or fallen away from the faith, from the truth of God's word. And they had instead uh, become re- reliant on the authority of the papacy and church tradition rather than God's word. And just if you've never heard these, this might be just a, re- a-, a new thing, but maybe a refresher if you've heard uh, the Reformation centered on five theological distinctives. And as I list these, I hope that you would see like this, these are things that I would stand on. The first was sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. And that teaches that the Bible, as the inspired word of God, is our final and solely infallible authority for faith and practice, okay, for both. It moreover asserts the perspicuity of scripture. What does that mean? That means this, that the central message of the Bible is clear that it is simple for you and I to understand. And so you don't need church tradition um, to to determine the right interpretation. Catholics are encouraged to read their Bible, but they are not encouraged to interpret it for themselves. For that, you need the authority of the church. I believe in the perspicuity of Scripture. I believe that the Holy Spirit is the true teacher of God's Word, and when you read it, you learn something. Sola Scriptura is considered the formal principle of the Reformation because it's the source of what is called the material principle, and that's the next one. It is sola fide, by faith alone. And that teaches that justification is received by faith only, and it's not on the basis of any uh, of our good works. So Protestants define justification as being declared righteous by God. Have you heard that? Being declared righteous by God. It's a very small, nuanced difference, but Catholics would say we are being made righteous by God, being made righteous. In fact, they look at justification and sanctification as really the same process. You and I are being made holy, aren't we? That's sanctification. But guess what? You were declared righteous. You're no longer guilty. That's righteous, uh, justified. Um, That is the difference. And so uh, we, we would teach that saving faith is what results in good works, and it's not the other way around. So that doctrine is called the material principle because that was the, uh, basically the primary reason that Luther's and the others separated from the Roman Catholic Church. There are a few others. I'll just go through these quickly. Sola gratia, by grace alone. And that teaches that the salvation of sinners is solely the result of God's grace, or our, we would say unmerited favor. Sola gratia, and it's uh, condemnation of works righteousness. That conflicts with the Roman Catholic doctrine of what's called merit, in which eternal life is seen not only as a gift of God, but also as a reward for your good works. In fact, here's a definition from the Catholic Encyclopedia. Take a look at it. It says this, The sinner is formally justified 
and made holy by his own personal justice and holiness, such that over and above faith, other acts are necessary for justification, including acts of charity, penance with contrition and almsgiving. The, other one, the next one is sola Christus, Christ alone, teaches that there's no mediator between God and man, only Jesus Christ. And that any other supposed mediator, whether it's a priest or a pope or a saint or Mary, must be rejected. And so the reformers rejected what was called the sacerdotal priestly system of the Roman Catholic Church, and they instead taught the priesthood of all believers. And the final one is soli deo gloria, glory to God alone, that all glory and all worship belongs only to God as the sole author and actor in salvation. It's his triune glory, and that is not to be shared with saints or popes or Mary or any other church leader. Those were the five solas of the Reformation. And they, that took place because they believed a falling away had taken place, that the Catholic Church had departed from the faith. And as we come to Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, departing from the faith is in there. And it is a Greek word. It's one word in the Greek. That phrase, depart from the faith, is one word. It's ephistemi, and it means to depart from the faith or to fall away. But more specifically, to remove oneself from the position originally occupied to another place. Because the original church, the early church, believed in the truth of Scripture. It was the traditions and the authorities of the popes and the traditions of the popes, the papacy that passed on, uh, and that's what began to change. Now, that word, ephistemi, um, is also the same word used in Hebrews 3. Now, we would, we've been going through Hebrews, so you saw this a while back, but Hebrews 3, verse 12, it says this, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing, ephistemi, from the living God. This is a, a purposeful, deliberate departure from the former position. Spiritually, here's what it refers to. I don't want to confuse people. It doesn't refer to people who are saved losing their salvation. Spiritually, it refers to those who have come very, very close to the truth, very close to the truth, only to leave the truth. The parable of the soils is, is a, a parable that illustrates that the seed that was put on the, the, the rock, where there was a soil there underneath the rock, and there was, um, you know, a, a, a initially a, a plant that came up, but it had no root, did it? had no root in true faith, and so it eventually died. And so what we're talking about today, and I know it's kind of a hard and heavy topic, but like I said, I, I've been in conversation with a few people about people who depart from the faith, and I thought, I, I should talk about that because Scripture has a lot to say uh, about it. Uh, we would say that these people are apostates, okay? An apostate is, is not someone uh, struggling to believe. That is not an apostate. An apostate is one who willfully abandons the biblical faith that he had once professed. Now, you can profess a faith, you can't you, but you can also do that and not be truly regenerated. And we don't know generally who those people are. But when people like Francis Beckwith come out and say, I'm no longer a believer, it rocks our world. We say, oh, what happens? Listen, this happens all through Scripture. When you pick up your Bibles, you read about it all the time. Not just in the New Testament, but you read about it in the Old Testament. I want to give you just a quick example. If you want to turn to Second Chronicles, you can find it easy. It's after 
First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then you come to First and Second Chronicles. It's Second Chronicles twenty-five. But here's just one quick example that you can see right away of King Amaziah of Judah. He became an apostate. Okay, in in I'm in First Chronicle. I'm in the wrong place, man, Pastor. All right, Second Chronicles twenty-five. That looks better. Verse two. Speaking of Amaziah, it says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord but not with a loyal heart. You see, there's a difference, okay? You can come to church, you can sit in a pew, you can, you can do the things that look right, look right in the sight of the Lord, but there's something wrong with the heart. It's not fully loyal to God. Amaziah was such a person. And so you look at Amaziah, and that's his start. That's where he started. He was doing things, it looked okay, but he didn't have a loyal heart. And you see his falling away in verse 14, because he goes against war against Edom. And in verse 14, it says, And it was so after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, set them up to be his gods, and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. Do you see, you go, well, what happened? What changed? Well, he didn't have a loyal heart. You see, he just left the faith, and now he's bowing down to other gods. And you see his end in verse 27. After the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, see, he turned away. They made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish, and they killed him there. That was his end. And the New Testament certainly is full of examples of apostates. Most of them are just mentioned. We read about Demas in, in 2 Timothy, but probably the most well-known is, well, Judas Iscariot, right? One of Jesus' very own. But here in 1 Timothy, Paul, writing to Timothy, actually mentions two uh, characters in chapter 1, verse 20, he mentions Hymenius and Alexander. And if you just glance uh, at verse 19, they're described as having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. They, they, they are apostates. Apostates are also described in, in, in verses 3 to 7. This, this book, this letter, is to Timothy, a young pastor of the church in Ephesus. And this is a problem. And Timothy has a challenging task before him, and Paul wants to encourage him because there's false doctrine that has to be challenged. There's, um, and, and obviously eradicated from the church. There's proper worship that has to be safeguarded. And also, as you read through 1 Timothy, you can see that strong, mature leadership needs to be developed. And so Paul tells him exactly how to do that. But what I want to focus on specifically today is looking at chapter 4. And in that chapter, Paul writes about apostasy. And in that chapter, in fact, just the first five verses of that chapter, um, he gives us six truths about apostasy that I hope will help you in understanding because it rocks our world. We see people leave the face. Well, how can something like this happen? We find the answer here. So let me just read the passage today. I'll read the first five verses. We'll pray, and then we'll get to our study. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. God, we thank you for your word to us today. And Lord, we know that before us we have a very important passage, 
very difficult topic. We pray that your Holy Spirit, the, the illuminator of truth, would be with us, Lord, that you would guide us into truth. Lord, we want to understand this. We want to understand the danger of this, but also to just understand it and, and how this works in our world, Lord. Would you guide us into your truth for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to look at six truths about apostasy today. And uh, the first one we find in verse one is this. Apostasy is chronologically accurate. (laughs) You might be saying, what are you talking about there? Well, just look back at verse one. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. It's the chronological aspect of this that we're looking at. It's accurate. Apostasy is going to take place, and it's going to take place in the latter times, which brings up the question, what are the latter times? I've heard so many people looking at the events of the world say, oh, gosh, looks like we might be in the last times or the end days. I have news for you. You're right, because Christ ushered in the last times. We've actually been in the latter times since the time of Christ. And I'm just going to show you a few verses, and we'll talk more about it. But 1 John 2.18 is a really great one. Little children, he says, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Forget the latter times. John says it's the last hour. Yeah. 1 Peter 1.20 He indeed was foreordained, speaking of Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was manifest, when did he become uh, 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 in human form? In these last times for you. And of course, in our study of Hebrews, we couldn't have missed this one in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So apostasy has always existed. We've seen it in the Old Testament. It's always existed, but it's expected particularly in the latter times. And the Bible tells us the latter times are the times since Christ. And I understand what people say when they look at the sign. When you're looking at these things happen in the world today, what you're, what you're seeing are the signs of the times. And certainly we know that apostasy is meant to escalate It's meant to increase in these last days because Jesus warned us of all the false Christs that would arise and that would lead many people astray. In Matthew 24, verses 4 to 5, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And certainly, uh, Jesus um, was referring to not only uh, people in his day, but the people he knew would follow him. And there have always been people like this. Peter and Jude, both of them warn about the mockers that would depart from faith in the last days. We're going to look at Jude in a, in a little bit, but, but take a look at 2 Peter 3, 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And as certainly Paul warned the falling away that would took place during the future time of tribulation. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, in fact, we'll be studying this. The men will be going through this soon. He says this, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come 
unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. And certainly that's the man of lawlessness. That's the Antichrist. When the Antichrist is revealed as the man of sin, my understanding is that's three and a half years into the tribulation. At that point, there's going to be a great falling away. He's going to ask people to worship him as God and people will. So it certainly exists today. Apostasy exists, but it's going to increase and escalate all the way up until the return of Christ when he comes to set up his kingdom here on earth. But, but just look at our world today. We really are living in unprecedented times, I, I, I believe, where more people are not departing from the faith, but I would say from the basic truths that God has made plain and evident in everyone's life. Don't you look around and say, the world has gone absolutely nuts. Think about this. All, all issues of morality are truth for youth people. Be listening up. Issues of identity and purpose and reality. Issues of truth and knowledge. We had a great speaker that talked about these are the issues everyone's talking about. It's in those three categories. Morality, metaphysics, and epistemology. That's it. And they're talking about all those things. They're all talking about, they all have opinions, but guess what they lack? They all lack one thing. Truth for you people, what is it they lack? Foundation. Foundation. There you go, A-star. Yes, foundation. But believers, we have a foundation we base our morality upon, amen? It's the scriptures, but they have nothing to base it on. And so they're all over the place. They're believing just the most insane things, and I'm not surprised. Because Romans 1 tells us, that hey, they want to pursue those, thing, those things, God's just going to give them over to those things. A debased mind. We also learned this week at Truth for Youth very interesting things, didn't we? That all people know three things. Someone comes up to you and they say, well, I no longer believe there's a God. You can say, well, actually, God told me different about you. Because Romans 1 tells me, actually, you know God exists. You know his law, and you know his righteous judgment. <laughs> right? That's true. Romans 1 just says it. And the truth is, is that they deny his existence because they love their sin, they hate God, and they fear his judgment. That's what our speaker said today, this weekend. So they deny all the truths that God has made known to us, and even some of the most basic and obvious regarding our, our biology, for crying out loud. Anatomy. We are born either a man or a woman. You are X, Y, or you're XX, and that's it. That's biology. That's genetics. And yet we have people denying just basic, basic truth of science, which the scriptures give us the framework for. Now, listen, I believe this is all part of a greater apostasy because even the churches are starting to adopt some of these beliefs. Apostasy is all around us. It's all around us. And what we're told here is it's chronologically accurate because why? We're in the last days. We should expect to see people falling away from the faith. But there's a second feature given to us, which is also found in verse 1. And that is this, apostasy is absolutely guaranteed. In verse 1, it says, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. You will. Not they might, but they will. Folks, it, it should sadden us. It should make us upset, but what it should never do is shock or surprise us. The Bible says they will. They'll depart from it. It's inevitable. It's a certainty. In fact, Paul, if you think about it, he's writing to the pastor of Ephesus. Well, Paul saw the writing on the wall, didn't he? He understood. He had warned the Ephesian elders that this would happen. In Ephesians chapter 20, 
28 to 30, he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So why is he so intent? Like, you've got to protect this church. Verse 29, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Paul said, I know this. After my departure, savage wolves are, are, are coming. I, I'm not going to make a guess. I, I know it's going to happen. But what else did he know? He says, also from among yourselves, men will rise. He's talking to the Ephesian elders. He's talking to people who are shepherding a church. What's that tell you? Not everyone in the church is saved. There are uh, wolves in sheep's clothing in the church. There are people who will begin to, well, I don't want to spoil it. We'll see, believe deceitful things and begin to follow those things and hoping to get people to follow them. And they'll depart from the faith. That's how it happens. But how did Paul know this? How did Paul understand this? Why was he so sure apostasy would happen? Did you see the very first phrase in verse 1? Now the Spirit expressly says. The Spirit says that. What what Spirit? The Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit, folks, ultimately, he's the author of the Bible. Amen? 2 Peter 1, 20-21 tells us, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, yes, when Moses wrote, all of Moses is involved in that, all of his character, his thoughts, his understanding, but it's all 100% Holy Spirit as well. The Holy Spirit, then, in Scripture, warns us, against and even gives us examples of apostasy all through scripture that's why he says the spirit expressly says this let me take you to another little book you're familiar with jude tiny little little book right before revelation make a right hand turn if you get to revelation you've gone too far it's literally the book right before it uh, there's no chapters because it's just 25 verses and you might remember when we were studying through the gospel of john our summer study that year was jude we went five weeks through Jude. Jude, this short book, is an entire book all about apostates. The whole thing is about apostates. Second Peter and Jude are very close to one another. Second Peter says, yeah, they're coming. They're going to be in the church. And Jude says, yeah, they're here. That, but they're very, very closely linked. And Jude warns us, warns the church to contend earnestly for the faith. He says, you're going to have to fight for the faith. Why are you going to have to fight for the faith? Because People are coming into to the church that are going to try to lead others from the faith. Look what he says in verse 4. This is scary. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I don't know where these came, people came from. It's like they crept in unnoticed. They're just here. And what they're doing now is they're actually denying Christ. People are following them. But he says something very interesting. He says they were long ago marked out for condemnation. You see that? What's he mean by that? Well, he's going to go on in this book to give examples from the Old Testament on how God has always faithfully dealt with the apostates. Listen, you don't have to. We contend for the faith. We deal with it here. We protect the church. We, 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 
we, we fight for the purity of the church. We don't seek for vengeance. That's God's terrain. He does that. And he's faithfully dealt with them over and over again. And so verses 5 and 6 and 7, he goes through and gives three examples from history in the Old Testament of apostates and how God has dealt with them. The first in verse 5 is apostate Israelites. And remember, we've seen this in Hebrews too, haven't we? They, they, were, they were believers, were they? I mean, they had God do these miracles in front of them. He would lead them with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. He'd bring manna from heaven and water from the rock, and yet they didn't believe, and they died in their unbelief in the desert. Their bones were there in the desert. Why? They departed from the faith. They didn't believe, we're told in Hebrews. They didn't believe. And that's why he says, beware that any of you depart from the faith because you have an evil heart of unbelief. The warning is very real. It's very easy. Very easy. You can be easily deceived to fall away. The second example he gives in in verse 6 is of apostate angels. Uh, Angels were told in verse 6 who did not keep their proper domain, their their sphere of authority that God had placed them in. Instead, they left that and they left their abode, the spiritual realm. They came to earth. We see this in Genesis. They came to earth and they inhabited man's body so that they could have intercourse with women. They had ungodly offspring was the attempt there, and God dealt with them. In fact, he tells us here that they are reserved in everlasting chains for darkness. How much closer can you get to God than being an angel to the truth? But they became apostate, you see? And then in verse six, he get, uh, 7, he gives the example of apostate Gentiles and speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah, who should have known the truth. They had righteous lot declaring the truth all the time, and yet God judged them. You see, the Spirit expressly warned against apostasy all through the Old Testament, Jew just takes it and shows it to us. Also, the apostles, the writers of the New Testament, also warned about apostasy because the Spirit spoke to them as, as well. And this is what we see in verses 17 to 19 of Jude, if you're still there. Look what he says. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What words? How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, and here's the clincher, not having the Spirit. Listen, can you be saved and not have the Spirit living in you? Absolutely not. He says, they're actually just people living for themselves. They're sensual persons, and they don't have the Spirit. And what they do, if you let them stay in the church, they cause divisions. They lead people astray, and you've got to deal with them. And so here we have a very, very just um, graphic warning, don't we, in Jude. Go back to our passage in, in 1 Timothy, because we have more. There's another feature in verse 1 as well. There's a lot just in verse 1, isn't there? And that is this apostasy is demonically inspired. It's demonically inspired. And that's what it says at the very end of verse 1. They're giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Apostasy is ultimately generated by demonic beings. That's what Scripture tells us. In fact, we know that the real battle isn't with uh, human flesh and blood but that there's a spiritual battle taking place. We're in a spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6, 12, Paul famously writes, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's the fallen uh, angels who energize, well, all false religion. There are demonic beings behind all of it. 
And so when men or women worship idols, they are in reality worshiping demons. Scripture tells us that God was so careful to instruct the Israelites to to, to not shed blood and to make sure when they sacrificed an animal that they were to bring it to the door of the tabernacle so that that would be sacrificed to the Lord because they were always so in danger by their neighbors of, of being swept away and sacrificing to what ultimately? Demons. And he says so in Leviticus seventeen seven. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. And this shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Interesting that he doesn't say to idols or false gods. He says to demons. He's targeting the thing behind it all. In fact, the psalmist of 106 in verses 36 to 37 says the same thing about Israel. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. It's demonic worship, ultimately, isn't it? It gives glory not to God, but to Satan. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians um, 10, 20. Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. He was warning the church there. He says, don't become part of that because it's more than just some false idol sitting there. There's a demon behind that. And you can't have fellowship with a demon. He says, what, what fellowship does Christ have with Belial, with light, with dark? You just can't do it as a believer. It doesn't work. And the problem is that apostates then are giving heed to the doctrines of demons. That's what he says here. And this word giving heed is prosecho, and it means to cling to or devote oneself to. Listen, this is not just an accidental, you're walking by someone and they're, 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 they're talking about her- heretical things. Demonic heresy enters your head because you accidentally heard it and suddenly, oh no, I'm trapped. Giving heed means you attach yourself to the teaching. You say, that I'm, ha- I'm hanging on to, that I'm following. And when you do, you attach yourself to a deceiving spirit. That's what happens. And that word deceiving is an important word as well. It's planos, where we get our word planet from. So it means wandering and roving as the planet is not stationary and moves, but came to be referred to as a misleading meaning it's not a firm foundation. It's not a firm and fixed teaching. These are those that wander and rove and trying to get people to, 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 to buy into what they're saying. They're deceitful, deceiving spirits. And the, the nature of this whole teaching is corrupt. That same word, planos, is used in 1 John 2, 7. I'm going to put the whole verse on here because it's a great warning passage against apostates. 1 John um, actually, one seven. It says, "For many deceivers have gone out into the world, who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God." You see, it's the biting, isn't it? He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. That's pretty hard, isn't it? Don't even let that person in your home, he says, because why? They're listening to deceitful spirits. And listen, 
None of us, none of us are above being deceived. Anyone can be deceived. And we've got to be very careful to not open ourselves to deception. Their deception is, is real and it's, it's, it's uh, effective. And it's effective because like their evil master, Satan, they disguise themselves as angels of light. Listen, listen, a, a demonic being doesn't appear before you, right? And says, no, listen to this teaching I have for you. No, no one's going to listen to that. That's not how it happens. But they are the deceitful spirits behind what's being presented to you. These demons don't appear before you, but who does? Who do they use? Human agents, which is another point, and we see this in verse 2. Apostasy is humanly promoted. Look at verse 2. Okay, after they've listened, they depart from the faith because they've listened to deceiving spirits. Verse 2, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. While the source is supernatural, okay, demons inspire it, the agents, they're natural. It's humans. It's humans. You get a knock on the door. It's a human promoting the deceitful um, doctrine. The phrase actually here, speaking lies in hypocrisy, literally means um, hypocritical lie speakers. That's what it means. It, these are humans. And so once people have devoted themselves, attached themselves to demonic doctrines, then they become the purveyors of those doctrines. It's spread through humans. And guys, this is everyone. Just because the person says he's a religious leader of a big church doesn't mean he hasn't been deceived. These are religious leaders. These are theologians, pastors, teachers in the schools. They're all over the place. They're in every, every area, every area. And I'm not trying to scare people, but what it means is that we have to be very careful we know the word of God. Okay? That's it. It's so easily uh, easy for us to be deceived. 2 Timothy 2.15, I'm reminded of that. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, you see? But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort. That's interesting. Paul, in 2 Timothy, in warning against apostasy there, says, yeah, Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort. That's the second time he mentioned this Hymenius guy because he mentions them in, in verse 1. How, it brings up a question. How are these teachers able to go about that demonic work uh, without any kind of restraint? The answer is given to us. Here, they have had their conscience seared with a hot iron. Causte riadzo is the word. Sounds like our word cauterized. That's where we get that from. It has been seared. That conscience, that's that God-given faculty. God gives that to you to affirm or condone your actions. It's the sensitivity to right and wrong, and, and, and that controls your behavior. And they have so long ignored that, they have so long misinformed that, that they become like scar tissue, burned senseless. And so they cease to function. They feel no guilt. They feel no remorse because they have seared their conscience. And Paul has already pinpointed this as the problem with this Hymenius guy. If you look at what he says about him here, back in verse 19, he says, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected... Concerning the faith has suffered shipwreck. You see, you reject your conscience. You misinform it enough. You're not going to know what's right or wrong any longer. 
You go against God's given faculty and form your behavior, and you keep saying, uh, ignoring that and saying no to that, then that will lead to uh, a suffering shipwreck in your faith. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 19, Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, there it is, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. See, they don't feel anymore. That's why they don't understand right and wrong. That's our world today. They're just ignoring their conscience on so many things, things that are blatantly right or wrong. They're searing their consciences. They're giving heed to these demonic doctrines. They're past feeling. So they speak lies. Now, Paul gives an example about the kind of lies that we can expect. And you would think Paul is going to give an example of, yeah, they deny the Trinity or they'll, they'll deny the deity of Christ. But that's not the example he gives. Satan is so subtle, he seeks to gain a foothold on territory that we will more easily yield. Look at the example he gives in verse 3. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. See, apostasy is deceitfully subtle. That's another point. It's subtle. Paul is just giving a sample of what was being taught in Ephesus to avoid marriage and to abstain from from foods. Now, as is typical of Satan, there are elements of truth to both of these, aren't there? When you look at the avoiding marriage, um, marriage is good. There's nothing wrong with singleness, though. And in fact, Paul states that it may aid spiritual service. Remember our study of 1 Corinthians 7. There's nothing wrong with fasting. It's fasting from food. That can be an important accompaniment to prayer. That's taught by Jesus, Matthew 6. These things are not deceiving in themselves. The deception comes when they are taught as being necessary elements of salvation. This is how you are seen as spiritual. I don't eat meat. I don't do this. I'm not going to get married. I'm going to be more spiritual as if God accepts you more because of that, then why did Christ die on the cross? It was Christ or whether you eat food? I don't think so. You see, all false religions have devised human means of salvation and spirituality. All of them. They're all the same. From the animism of the primitive tribes to the sophisticated major world religions we see, men rely on good works, outward ritual, self-denial, all those things. Let me show you a great passage. It's a very short left-hand turn to the book of Colossians. If you're in 1 Timothy, you're just going to pass those two little Thessalonians, and then you're in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 16. 16 to 23, in fact. This is a great section that speaks speaks directly to this idea about the subtle things that people will try to try to get you to listen to and to follow that have absolutely nothing to do with the gospel. Look at verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Have you ever had a conversation with people? Why do you meet on Sunday? You're not meeting on the Sabbath? Well, here you go. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. What are we studying in Hebrews? Yeah, those things were shadows and patterns, but Christ is here. You don't need that anymore. 
right? It's as if I got engaged to my wife and I got this wonderful ring and I'm looking at the ring and I should look at the ring because it's reminding me, oh, that day is coming. I get to marry my wife and then I get married and all I care about is the ring. I just keep looking at the ring and she's like, hey, I'm right here. I said, yeah, but the ring, it's ridiculous, but that's what people do. Christ is here. That was, that was the shadow. Look at verse uh, 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he is not seeing, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. That's Christ. From whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, If you die with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why? As though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, right? Which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of, and here get it, no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Hey, it all looks good on the outside, and those people are crumbling under the flesh. Because the victory doesn't come from your ability to prevent these things. Your victory comes from the Holy Spirit. And see, and the, but listen, at the same time, what's chapter 3 about? All right, look at verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, well, then I do seek the things which are above where Christ is sitting. I do set my mind on things above. Why? Verse 3, you died Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 5, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. You do put to death fornication. I don't continue to fornicate. I put to death those things, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness. That's idolatry, right? I I don't lie to people. Verse verse 8, I put all these things away, anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy, filthy language out of my mouth. Why? Because... Verse 9, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and you've put on the new. Because you're a new creation. Why would, you, why would you put on the filthy rags of the old? So while we don't make those things the elements that are necessary for spirituality and being accepted by God, because we are saved, we do then. I don't want those things anymore because that inhibits my race. That inhibits my sanctification. But it does nothing in my acceptance to God. People that try to teach you those things, they're, they're being deceitfully subtle. Listen, you don't want to uh, eat meat, that's fine, but it has nothing to do with your spirituality. You want to remain single, you're not holier, God doesn't accept you more. We have to be very careful about these things. Listen, people will tell you stuff about anything, and you got to be very careful. It's deceitfully subtle. Now listen, while it's deceitfully subtle, it is also, last point, apostasy is blatantly against the truth. <laughs> it's subtle, but if you know the truth, it's obviously against the truth. Go back to our passage in 1 Timothy, last point here. Look at verses 3, the second half of 3 um, to, to 5. Speaking of the marriage and then the foods, he says, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, And nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. See, God created all of these things to be received with thanksgiving. What's that tell us when you speak of these two things, marriage and food? God created both. What does uh, Scripture say about those things? God created them, and they were 
good. They were good. And this is the fundamental error of apostate teaching. It rejects the truth of God's word. Contrary to the false teaching that plagued Ephesus, God created these things to be enjoyed. He wants that. Jesus even declared that all foods were clean. All foods were clean. In Matthew 7, 18 to 19, he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Because they're so concerned about the cleaning, right? And the foods and the things that went in, but they were filthy inside. Look, he says, do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? You're not, you're not defiled because you ate pork or you like a burger. He says, because it does not enter his what? Heart. It goes into his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. Jesus said, it's all good. I purified it all. What do you say to Peter? Kill and eat. It's okay. What a man eats does not have anything to do with his heart unless it's high in cholesterol. <laughs> so marriage and food, he says, they're both good. And boy, am I glad because I like being marriage and I like food. But notice what it says. God created marriage and food to be received with thanksgiving. If that's the case, how then can it be right to deny them to men to say, you shouldn't eat that. God doesn't accept you because you eat that. I'm holy because whatever. It's created to be received with thanksgiving. He made marriage and he made food for the same reason he made everything else. Do you know what that reason is? That you would, that he would give you joy and in your joy, receiving it with thanksgiving, giving him glory. Everything, everything. First Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Notice that it says it is to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You see that? Which brings up the question, well, hold on. Unbelievers who don't know the truth, unbelievers get married. Unbelievers eat food. That is true. But they don't fulfill the ultimate intention for which it was created. Why? They don't give thanks to him. The praise does not go to him. We enjoy these things. We say, God, thank you so much for this. It's a gift from you. Does that make sense? So those things come to us. It's our enjoyment of those things that give him praise. We fulfill the intention for which those things were created in the first place. He says in verse 4, For every creature of God is good. You see, deceivers deny the goodness of God's creation. Nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. And once again, Paul emphasizes the purpose there, giving good things to men so that they receive it with joy and praise him. So we can receive the things that God has created for our enjoyment. Why? For to sanctify by the word of God in prayer. Now, sanctified says set apart. Set apart by the holy word of God, that, that it's set apart for him. It's sanctified. So we can take this understanding into other subjects, can't we? Here's a great question. Is sex bad? Is sex wrong? When is sex wrong? Well, when it takes place outside the context of marriage because he made them male and female and they became together in one flesh. Okay, well, then when is it right? When it's enjoyed between a husband and a wife. And then it is sanctified. What's it sanctified? Not by you, by the word of God. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, he's going to judge. It's like, well, they involve themselves in that too. Yeah, but outside the context of marriage. And so God judges that. But the marriage bed, holy, honorable, undefiled. How about alcohol? Another one, right? Some people are like, oh, it's, it's from the devil. Don't tell when is alcohol wrong, according to Scripture, according to the truth? When one gets drunk. 
right? Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation or riotous living, okay? Instead, be filled with the Spirit, right? That's being out of control. But when is drinking or alcohol uh, uh, good? Well, when it's received with thanksgiving and exercised with self-control. Now, are there other principles we can apply? Absolutely. Paul says, listen, I, I can enjoy all things, but I'm not going to be mastered by anything. So we've got to make sure we're not mastered by anything. We also have to look at, hey, I can enjoy things, but what's profitable for me? We, we implement other, other principles, but we don't give those to other people and say, you're you know, in the wrong. You're not even a Christian because uh, you do this. That is bringing these subtle things in the mix that God does not want us to bring into the mix. When we honor the Lord's word, when we receive all the things he has created with thanksgiving, we give him glory. Now, those are just two examples um, that Paul gives. That's why we give those. So those are subtle ways in which apostates, they try to lure people. But it can be any teaching, can it? Any teaching that's contrary to God's word. Um, it's some form of, of externalism. Um, then if you see that, then you know it's not from God because it doesn't please him and it doesn't promote spirituality. And we've got to check these things against God's word. Let me just end with Hebrews 13, 9. We're not there yet in our study of Hebrews, but we will be shortly. It says, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. And which brings us all the way back to that formal principle of the Reformation, which is the source of the material uh, principle sola fide that is sola scriptura by scripture alone which teaches the bible is the only inspired word of god it's our final and solely infallible authority for faith and practice church in first timothy three fifteen, paul says that i want to come to you but if i'm delayed i write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of god which is the church of the living god the pillar and ground of the truth and then what's the next thing we have? His teaching on apostasy. Listen, the church is the pillar, the ground of truth. We've got to stand on the truth. Because if we don't, it'd be, it'd be very easy for apostates to enter our mix and begin to like creeping these little things into others' households. We've got to watch that. Be very careful. I, I bring a hard topic because I think it's all around us. We're meeting more and more people. We're hearing more and more people that just depart from the faith. It seems innocent at first. But remember, they're doctrines of demons. And so we've got to be very, very careful. Run it by the word of God. Remember, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word has everything we need. We thank you that we, we, can, we can get encouraged on topics like this, apostasy, uh, departing from the faith. We see so much of it around us, Lord, and, and be encouraged by, by the, 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 the basic things that are described here. We can, we can identify apostasy very easily now. We can see these things. Oh, and we can understand that ultimately behind all these things, Lord, there are demonic powers that, that want to suck away the glory from God, want to pull people from the faith and get them on sidetracked issues of things that have no importance, that have no, nothing to do with salvation or grace or the blood of Christ. Lord, I just pray that you would protect your church. We want to stand firm on your truth. Lord, I pray that when we, we hear others maybe beginning to entertain some of these doctrines, Lord, that we would be bold to, to, to rescue them from those things, to, 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 to really you know, jump in on that. Uh, Lord, we, we've got to protect the church and be contenders for the faith, as Jude said, Lord. 
We need your spirit. We need your boldness. We need your strength. So be with your people. Help us to glorify you in all things. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.